It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, our explainer in chief. He'll talk about the Oracle Java fiasco and a whole lot more, plus answer 10 of your questions with a bonus 11th question. It's all up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 387, recorded January 16th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 159. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit gotoassist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones and your privacy online. With this man right here, he's the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson. I call him that because he's so good at taking technical, difficult subjects and making them crystal clear. And uh, he's done that on many, many shows. Today, though, this is a Q&A, so we'll get lots of little bits of crystal clear. Hello, Steve. And a nice update on the happenings of the week. We've had an event filled over in the security industry week that we'll catch everybody up with. No kidding. And I, there was an interesting tweet that I got from a from a listener and Spinrite owner who was whose Mac was saved. Uh, the, his SSD on his Mac was saved, and it. And so I just sort of retweeted that, and that a whole bunch of other people say, wait a minute, I thought you couldn't use Spinner on an SSD right. and, and blah, blah, blah. So I thought I'd take a little bit of time to explain oh, good. the problem. And in fact, I sent you a picture that you you can share uh, at the appropriate time showing a very distressed-looking solid-state drive. It's no <laughs> longer the case that solid-state drives are as perfect as one as we would think, and I'll explain why that is also the case. Excellent. Yeah. Mr. G. And then we have uh, 10 questions from uh, you, do. the viewers. Why don't we kick things off? And uh, we've got to go to assist ad, and I'll get to that uh, okay. before we go to our Q&A. So the big news, and I'm, I mean, it's big enough that you were even covering it on your weekend uh, syndicated oh, radio yeah. show, The Tech Guy. Um, and I thought it, what was humorous to me was that the media picked it up as the U.S. government is recommending that everyone uninstall Java. And, okay, well, you know, CERT is the standard, uh, you know, computer response team for for the government that maintains a list of vulnerabilities and concerns. It is now a division of the Department of Homeland Security, the DHS. And for some reason, what got caught in the news net was that, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is recommending that everyone uninstall Java. Now, this is nothing different than any other zero-day flaws. 
And in fact, I saw some people tweeting out to their followers, uh, you know, and, and, and mentioning SGGRC, which is why I happened to see it in their Twitter stream. That's like, yeah, nothing new. You know, Gibson's been telling us about this for years. So, in fact, this is nothing new. This is an- yet another zero-day flaw. It was discovered, um, I think it was it was just after our podcast last week, so like Thursday, and then the news continued to escalate. Um, I thought since, since it's easy just to say, oh, ho-hum, you know, that I wanted to share from the the DHS cert notice what they said just so that our listeners get a sense for how complex this stuff is so what the DHS posted was actually derived from the discoverers and reverse engineers analysis and that's our friend who we've talked about before Adam Gaudiak he posted over on the uh, secure list his analysis. This is, believe it or not, a simplification of what Adam posted. That this, so CERT said uh, their, their title was Java 7 Fails to Restrict Access to Privileged Code. And we'll talk about version numbers and all that in a second. They posted, by leveraging a vulnerability in the Java Management Extensions, JMX, mbean components unprivileged java code can access restricted classes by using that vulnerability in conjunction with a second vulnerability involving recursive use of the reflection api via the invoke with arguments method of the method handle class an untrusted java applet can escalate its privileges by calling the set security manager function to allow full privileges without requiring code signing. Okay, now that, believe it or not, is the simplified version of what Adam posted, which just, I mean, your, your eyes cross and you can't uncross them. But, I mean, this stuff is really convoluted, but that's the problem, is that we're now seeing an aging platform Java, which has a massive code base, it it was created in an era where security wasn't a focus, and it's been exploding in size as they've added major new features. And in fact, this vulnerability didn't exist in in six and earlier. There have been some conflicting reports, but the most authoritative sources say no. This would this is a consequence of new functionality which Sun slash Oracle added at Java seven. So it's been all Java's up through all Java sevens up through update ten, which was current until on Sunday of so just four days ago, Oracle put out an emergency patch in order to fix that. So uh, CERT goes on saying Oracle Java, Java 7 update 10 and earlier Java 7 versions are affected. Open JDK 7 and subsequently ICE-T, which <laughs> I guess is a weak version of Java, <clears throat> are also affected. The invoke with arguments method was introduced with Java 7 so therefore, Java 6 and earlier is not affected. 
This vulnerability is being attacked in the wild and is reported to be incorporated into exploit kits. Exploit code for this vulnerability is also publicly available. We have confirmed, and this was the other thing, is this was, so this is all Java, this is all platforms. So CERT is saying we've confirmed that Windows, OS X, I'm sorry, OS 10, and Linux platforms are affected. Other platforms that use Oracle Java 7 may also be affected. By convincing a user to visit a specially crafted HTML document, a remote attacker may be able to execute arbitrary code on the vulnerable systems. Note that applications that use the Internet Explorer web content rendering components, such as Microsoft Office or Windows Desktop Search, may also be used as an attack vector for this vulnerability. And unfortunately, it's pretty darn hard to turn it off in IE. Well, okay, so, so the good news is that with Update 10, which is not very old, because we were talking about this just a couple weeks ago, they added, they did add in the control panel an easy means oh, good. For, for, for simply disabling the web aspect of java when you say they this isn't microsoft this is uh, oracle no they they oracle yeah and so and is it in so, the in the windows control panel or in a, a special java control panel well if you get to it from the you know the windows control panel applet which contains all of the control panel applets that have that have registered right. themselves and so there will be a java ah, good. a java applet in the windows control panel it opens the Java uh, uh, control, and then there's a tab there and a check mark box at the top that you can uncheck to disable Java's plug-in capability across all of your browsers that um, That's that nice are that. that are using Java. So they finally added that in ten. So even in this vulnerable version, that's there. Of course, the problem is only our listeners have gone in and turned that off or, you know, uninstalled Java. They, you know, and, you know, of course, Oracle brags that it's in three billion devices. Yeah, when you install it. <laughs> billion, billion with a B, yes. Yeah. When you install it and tell them you don't want McAfee to come right, along for right. the ride. So, By the way, McAfee so anyway, wouldn't help you in this no. case. <laughs> so so our, our, our friend Adam Gaudiak... Um, he, uh, I, I'm skipping all of his technical stuff because it's again, it just, but it gives you a sense for you, you, you've got to be a a deep expert in order both to develop an exploit and also to figure out what's happened and fix it. And but the the problem, the the, the whole problem is where this is a house of cards. It is incredible, ridiculous level of interaction such that even the authors of the code can't fix it. And what's really interesting is this is the result of a failed previous patch. Last time there was this, and in fact, our really astute listeners may remember some of that language because I shared it last time. This was uh, when Adam found something like this in August of 2012. So he, he, wrote, he writes this time, this is not the first time Oracle fails to sync security of core and the new Reflection APIs, just to mention the Reflection API filter. This is also not the first time Oracle's own investigation and analysis of security issues turns out 
to be not sufficiently comprehensive. Uh, and, and then he points to issue 50, uh, which was discovered in the code addressed by the company not long ago. Then he finishes saying, bugs are like mushrooms. In many cases, they can be found in a close proximity to those already spotted. It looks like Oracle either stopped the picking too early or they are still deep in the woods. So, so this I'm, I'm glad for all of this because this level of attention increases the pressure and allows the budgeting of more focus on Oracle. This is always about money. This is always about economics. It's, you know, I'm sure the developers are wishing they had more time to, like, check new releases, to verify security, to run regression analysis. There's, there's going to be some, some tension between the developers who really want to do a good job and the, the managers of them who are feeling pre- pressure to, to put out the new features that they announced at some prior conference. So, you know, this sort of attention, very much like, the, you know, we were talking last weekly w- with how Fire Sheep put pressure on the major social networking companies to bring up their SSL barriers much more quickly than they would have if they ever would have without it. Similarly, I mean, this is not good, but the fact that this escalated, you know, to you talking about it on your on your weekend radio show and the news covering it as the U.S. government advising people to remove Java, that gets Oracle's management attention and allows yeah. them to to put their focus where it should. And did they? Did now like, they did an update yesterday. Did that fix this hole, or was that? Yes. Okay. Yes. That well. Okay, yes. The, the, yeah, there was that, and then there was also a Microsoft emergency out-of-cycle update that we'll talk about in a second. Okay. Um, Apple was very proactive on this. The instant this came to light, they used the, a new feature in OS X, which is their plug-in blacklist, which is a file called xprotect.plist, and they declared that the current version of Java and prior were unsafe. And so all Mac users were immediately protected as soon as Apple became aware of this. This got pushed out to to connected Macs. And of course, the disconnected Macs were never in danger because this is all about networking. So So I thought that's not an update. You just get that automatically. Yes. Without doing anything, your your Safari browser um, will no longer run Java as soon as a problem like this is uh, becomes known. And Brian Krebs, uh, our friend who's d- maintaining a great blog, KrebsOnSecurity.com, um, he did a great blog posting shortly after this, which was a what you need to know about the Java exploit. But what, was, what I got a kick out of was that when I went there to see how far down it was and to see if I wanted to get a link to our listeners, already – there's another zero day. The, the current, <laughs> I mean, what a mess. A- after this, so so if you go to KrebsOnSecurity.com now, um, what you will find is new Java exploit fetches five thousand dollars per buyer, and Brian writes less than twenty four hours after Oracle patched a dangerous security hole in its Java software that was being used to seize control of Windows PCs, 
miscreants in the underweb were already selling an exploit for a different and apparently still unpatched zero-day vulnerability in Java. And then he links to, um, or I'm sorry, then his, his blog posting has an excerpt from what the hacker posted. The hacker posted new Java zero-day selling to two people $5K per person. Wow. The hacker wrote, as you thought, Java had epically failed when the last zero day came out, I LOL'd. The best part is even though Java has failed once again and let users get compromised, guess what? I think you know what I'm going to say. There is yet another vulnerability in the latest version of Java. So that is the 11 update, the patched one. I will not go into any details except with seriously interested buyers. Code will be sold twice. It has been sold once already. It is not present in any known exploit pack, meaning that it's still valuable because it's unknown, including the very private version of Black Hole, which is rented. You rent this particular Black Hole exploit pack for 5 k per month. He says, I will accept counterbids if you wish to outbid the competition. What you get? Unencrypted source files to the exploit, so you can re-encrypt as necessary. I would warn you to be cautious who you allow to encrypt. They might try to steal a copy. Encrypted, weaponized version, simply modify the URL in the PHP page that calls up the JAR, that's the, the Java file extension, J-A-R, to your own executable URL, and you are set. You may PM me. So we're, we're basically just always in Java zero-day vulnerability rolling forward mode at this point. It's gotten that bad. My so, God. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, again, uh, they, from Java version 10, I'm sorry, Java version 7, update 10, and on, you can... Just disable Java in your browser, and, of course, that seems like a good thing to do. Or um, one of the tips that Brian has on his, you know, what you should know about the Java exploit, and I would recommend people go to KrebsOnSecurity.com, and you have to go back about six blog entries, blog postings at this point, um, to find that one. But he's got a really nice page with, with tips about dealing with Java, one being... To, to do the dual browser approach, which is completely remove the plugin and, and like seriously disable it from the browser you use mostly and then have a, a browser you don't use often where, where you go to trusted sites and, and have Java enabled if you need it. I mean, when I've, when I've talked about this in the past, I've received mailbag and tweets from people, for example, in Scandinavia who, where for some reason they're, all their banks apparently are based on Java applets. And so they have to have Java enabled in their browser in order to operate. But, you know, the, the, the reason we see Java is that it's, it's cross-platform, that it allow, it's a serious programming language, a nice mature programming language, which um, um, codes, it, it compiles to a, sort of a pseudo-instruction set, a so-called virtual machine 
And then these virtual machines are hosted on different platforms, um, on different architectures, you know, on Windows and, and Linux and, and Mac and other places. It originally, it was developed for set-top boxes. And so that, that, you know, that, that's a time-honored approach. The problem is that when they said, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you could use Java on web pages? This is not JavaScript. This is Java. So, so this, this huge behemoth programming environment that was never meant to be exposed to the Internet got exposed to the Internet through the web browser, thus the problem. So it, it's, uh, it's really become a, a major uh, you know, feasting zone for, for, as Brian puts it, miscreants. I love miscreants. So turn it off or uninstall it if you don't. If you know you don't need it, and if you do, it's and and if you and if you have a habit of you know poking around in, on the shadier side of the internet, you really for your own sake need to come up with some sort of a strategy for for doing that poking around you know on your iPad or on a tablet or on a you know on a safe on a safe browser that doesn't have Java and only use a browser with Java enabled when you're going to sites where you know you have to have it. And, of course, no script for um, Firefox allows Java control uh, on a site-by-site -site basis as well. So, meanwhile, we talked last Tuesday, or we talked last Wednesday, about the prior day's second Tuesday of the month Microsoft Patch Tuesday event, where they offered, we'll remember, seven patches that fixed a whole bunch of, I think it was like 12 or 13 vulnerabilities. Those were MS13-001 through MS13-007. Well, Monday of this week, they just released the out-of-cycle emergency patch that they didn't obviously have time to get done by last Tuesday. And that so this is MS13-008 and it does fix the remaining glaring problem that they had. That was with their, the MSIE versions 6, 7, and 8 zero-day problem, which their fix-it did not completely fix. This now does completely fix the problem. So anyone who noticed that they're, you know, if they were shutting down their system and they were told, oh, you know, install patches and shut down, which is one of the things that Microsoft does now. Uh, or if you your system rebooted, if that's the way you have it configured or whatever, um, it was because Microsoft was sneaking out this fix, which they, um, I'm sure they would have done it last Tuesday if they could. So, and as it was, they, they did respond overall very quickly. We were, when we were originally talking about this, it was like a week before, and I was, I was musing whether there would be time for them to get it into the next Tuesday cycle, and there wasn't, but they did get it out as quickly as they possibly could. And on the topic of no matter how dire the warnings are, uh, better critical infrastructure security does not necessarily follow. We have in the news uh, IDG uh, covered the story and Network World, among others, picked it up that Malware was found infecting two U.S. power generating facilities through USB. Um, and I shortened the story a little bit, paraphrased it for the podcast, but uh, basically IDG News Service said that two U.S. power companies reported infections 
of malware during the past three months with the bad software apparently brought in through tainted USB drives, according to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And this is interesting. This is an acronym I hadn't heard before. The Industrial Control Systems Cyber Emergency Response Team. So that's a new version. It would normally have U.S. CERT. This is ICS CERT, the Industrial Control Systems. So I'm glad we have that. Maybe maybe that'll help. And they, and they said, in the first case, the industrial control system at a power generation facility was infected with, quote, common and sophisticated malware, apparently through an employee's USB drive. The name of the malware was not specified. The tainted USB drive came in contact with a handful of machines, unquote, at the power generation facility, and investigators found sophisticated malware on two engineering workstations critical to the operation of the control environment. Investigators did not find malware on 11 other workstations examined. ICS CERT recommended that the power facility adopt, quote, I love this, new USB use guidelines, you know, which we talked about three years ago, uh, including... The, clean up, the cleaning of a USB device before each use. Yeah, that'll happen. In the, second, in the second incident, a power company contacted ICS CERT in early October to report a virus infection in a turbine control system. About 10 computers were affected, ICS CERT said. An outside technician used a USB drive to upload software updates during equipment upgrades. CERT said the malware delayed the plant's reopening by three weeks. So uh, here we're seeing reports, thanks to us having something like ICS CERT. Notice that these various power facilities are remaining anonymous, probably to encourage them to report these problems rather than, you know, making, giving them a big black eye for doing so. So that's good. But, um, wow, um, you know, we know from from having tracked down forensically the way we got, we apparently, we and Israel, managed to get Stuxnet into the centrifuge control system in Iran. We know that those were off the net and that the malware jumped the gap using USB drives. And so, you know, there are, remember that the original viruses rode around on floppies. Um, using the so-called sneaker net approach. Um, that's where they lived. And now they're living on USB drives, which are obviously very effective because USB drives tend to be highly promiscuous by, in their behavior. No fault of, them, of, of themselves, of course. So anyway, um, be careful of your USB drives. And, you know, the, the good news is Microsoft awoke to this several years ago such that um, you know, it, this, the operating systems are far more careful about just, you know, immediately running the auto exec uh, file uh, on a drive when you plug it in as they originally were set up to do. It's like, oh, won't this be convenient? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a concern that might be big, but I'm, I don't know. And that is a, a, what's been reported as a zero-day remote pre-auth vulnerability in Linksys routers. Um, 
a company defense code whose whose domain is defensecode.com um, reported several months ago that they had found a remote pre-auth vulnerability, um, meaning that they can get around login vulnerability, which gives them root access to Linksys routers. Um, there's a video, and I created a bit.ly link for our listeners. It's bit.ly slash Linksys zero day with a numeric zero. So L-I-N-K-S-Y-S numeric zero D-A-Y, all lowercase, in, ca- in case people wanted to go look at it. Now, what it shows is them connecting to the router over 192.168.1.1, which is the inside the network local interface. Now, while it's not good that there is a way for malware to attack your router from the inside, well, UPnP <laughs> allows your allows mal- malware to do that with everyone's permission. So, you know, so the problem would be if you had disabled universal plug and play because you're security aware and smart and something bad already got into your network, it could attempt to see whether you've got a vulnerable Linksys router and bypass your cleverly changed administrator password in order to access the guts of your router. And this little video absolutely demonstrates that happening. I'm assuming that this is not exploitable on the public interface, that is, on the side facing the Internet. If it is, we have a disaster on our hands. Um, Cisco has ignored, basically, this report. They responded that they had already fixed the vulnerability in their latest firmware release, but Defense Code checked the latest version of the firmware for the WRT54GL router, which, of course, is a high-end, powerful router that that lots of people use, the uh, the, the WRT54G series. And the latest firmware, which was 4.30.14, was still vulnerable. And Defense Code stated that the nature of it leads them to believe it is probably widespread across many routers that are um, Linux-based and probably goes way back. Uh, And this is 70 million routers worldwide. Um, So what Defense Code has said is, according to our disclosure, our vulnerability disclosure policy, the vulnerability details will be disclosed in following two weeks at defensecode.com on bug track and full disclosure on the, you know, the standard disclosure mailing lists. So Cisco has burned up their time and apparently done nothing about this. I'm again, there's no reason to believe this is of this is a vulnerability on the public interface. There's a lot of reason to believe it isn't because remember you're, the first thing that packets hit when they come in from the outside is the NAT, the, 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 the stateful NAT router. It's an effective firewall. Um, it's, you know, it, it's very rare that we see a problem there. It's not impossible. You know, my own 
spoofability test, the, DN the, the DNS server spoofability test, it routinely crashes people's routers. And I'm, I'm constantly getting reports from people about, oh, you, this, yes, you know, the, actually, when I was developing that, we were crashing our beta testers' routers. And so I figured out what it was I was doing so that the regular test wouldn't do it. But I, then I put in a does this crash your router test for people who wanted to find out because the concern is there may in fact be an exploitable vulnerability from the outside that I stumbled on. But because I'm not a bad guy, I've never pursued it in order to figure out, you know, how exactly to turn that into an exploit. I don't I have no interest in that. But so there's some possibility that something is there, which is a problem. It may just be that it's a form of overload that's crashing the router and not something that could be exploitable, at least in my case. But so I don't want to oh, I want to alarm people needlessly. I would be surprised if Defense Code found something that was remotely exploitable, but they may and they may only be showing it on the on the private interface, the inside interface, because they don't want to, you know, overheat the world about figuring out what they've done. We'll know in two weeks, and I will certainly update us. Um, Cisco has been as lame as anyone could be about these problems. And in fact, one of our Q&A questions we'll be getting to uh, focuses on that with some details. So uh, anyway, just to I don't think this is going to be a problem. The only vulnerability is if something already got in your system, in your network, that it could then take over your router. But again, that's that's true for pretty much everything. So, you know, Universal Plug and Play does that, as I said, with permission. So we will uh, we'll keep an eye on this and let everyone know. Um, I just tweeted a – this is now we're in, in miscellaneous stuff – a fabulous – review of five volt usb chargers uh, i know this is totally random but the <laughs> page is it is so wonderful what, I made wait a minute. what are the differences between five volt usb chargers it's they're huge ah. I, I made a bitly bit.ly slash usb charge usb c-h-a-r-g-e so and leo check it out i mean it's it's the good news is there's a winner there's a clear, clearly superior USB charger. Apple's is highly regarded by this guy who is a clear, a clearly an electrical engineer. Um, actually, I got on to him because Simon Zarafa, who is a frequent tweeter and an amazing finder of things, found a page where this guy shows how part of the logic of the old 6502 microprocessor can be reverse engineered by looking at the by looking at the out the exposed chip. I have most um, of these chargers. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm glad to see that but I, I wow, so there's a chip in here. So, um anyway, so I I commend our listeners bitly bit.ly/usbcharge and it's a wonderful page. He takes, I don't know, maybe 12 and puts them through all kinds of tests. He tests the ripple. He, he, he puts them under load. He shows how well-regulated they are. He, he tears them open and looks at the physical construction. Um, and everything is rated and ranked. And the HP tablet charger is the things, clear winner. Which you can no even, longer get. Even Actually, they're on Amazon for $25. Wow. Is it a 10-watt uh, charger? 
Yeah, it's a it's a high power, better than a little better than five volts and a little better than two amps. Okay. So it's a it's a beautiful charger. And that's what you want in every case, even though your device may require fewer watts. An iPad requires ten watts to charge. Actually the new iPad charger is even a little more powerful. But even if you have one that only requires, you know, I don't know, eight hundred Point eight milliwatts. Well, well and, 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 and and as we know, power equals voltage times current. Right. So five volts times two amps is ten, 10 watts. watts. Right. Uh, but it wouldn't hurt anything if you put a ten watt adapter on it. Oh, absolutely not. It's just it would charge just, faster in most cases. It's cruise. It's cruising along and yeah. and having a good time. Yeah. Safety standards is one of the things he talks about. Yeah. Oh, and there is some really interesting stuff about the clone chargers. There are a bunch of clones <laughs> that are not that safe. Are in there that are. I mean, oh, and he shows the pictures, like the, the like the clones of the Apple charger side by side, and you can clearly see that not as much fit and finish care was given oh, yeah. to the clone as to the original one, and. And 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 then he talks about the insides and the clones just behave miserably. I mean, there's just probably a diode in there, and it's right. like, <laughs> good right. luck. Right. Good to know. <laughs> do not, don't don't use cheap chargers. Do not want to use a cheap charger. The last yeah. thing you want is for for AC to get its way, you know, up that cord to your precious phone or tablet or. He also whatever. rates for vampire uh, use. That is how much power the charger uses when it's not charging. Yes. And uh, the Samsung Oblong is best in that regard. Only 19 milliwatts when it's not being used. To to compare it, the uh, Apple iPhone charger is 195 milliwatts when not being used, but the iPad charger is 62. It's the next best. Wow, this is really interesting. I love Isn't that this. Nice? I love this uh, fake counterfeit, which looks pretty good until you see that it is the Apple one is designed by Apple in California. And the cheap one, the fake one, is designed by California. <laughs> That's the giveaway right there. Yeah, yeah. I have a bunch of these Samsung oblongs because I have a lot of Samsung phones. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Well, now you know that you can leave them plugged in leave and they're not burning yeah, too they're much so power. Bad. Yeah. Very. That, wow. That is an interesting article. Who'd have yeah, thunk I thought, it? I thought that was a great page. Yeah. So speaking of who to thunk it, um, if you put up for our video listeners or watchers, Leo, that JPEG, which was tweeted to me last week, that is um, an image of Spinrite's drive map running on a six-month-old crucial 500 gigabyte, so half a, half a terabyte SSD. Hmm. And anyone who ever believed that solid-state drives were like, you know, memory, <laughs> will be disabused of that belief looking at that map. Those U's are all unrecovered yes. sectors. Now, what happened was the the person who was doing this, and I unfortunately don't have his tweet handle in front of me, uh, he just tweeted to me in the middle of the day, I think it was in late morning, that, you know, that Spinrite was, was working on his USB drive, I'm sorry, his SSD drive from his Mac. I think he'd removed it from his Mac and he was running it on a PC. I note that it's running it, it's getting a very nice speed. Uh, he's showing it, uh, the, 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 the chart there, the map, Spinrite shows that it has halfway through 500 gigabytes in about 20 minutes. So it would be about a 40 minute run for the whole half a terabyte, uh, which is about right. So, um, but he said he was running it on level one. And I said, oh, you don't want level one. 
you want level two. He's a listener, and so he knew that Spinrite could be used to recover SSDs, and his system was trashed. It would no longer boot. Nothing was working. So he did this. Um, so he restarted it at level two. The difference is both level one and two are read-only, and that's the key. You don't want to run level four, which is exercising the surface, because they are exercising the the bits with, you know, and and nominally wearing them out. Not very much, but there's really no point to it. It You know, it's unlike the, the operation of a physical media with a defect where you're, use, you're, you're exercising the bits in order to find the defect. Um, here, um, what you want to do is run level two because level one is not permitted to fix anything. That's why he was getting all those U reports of problems, but Spinrite was, had been prevented from doing any repair. So he started again on level two, and I got a tweet from him about an hour later saying that his system was running again. So Spinrite did fix his 500 gig SSD uh, by by removing it from a Mac, and he ran it, I guess, over, hooked it up to a PC in order to run it, um, and then put it back and, you know, and was a happy camper. However, um, what he, he, he tweeted, he said, six-month-old crucial 500 GB SSD not looking good. New, in all caps, I should have stuck with OWC. So what happened was I retweeted his tweet, and it caused a flurry of responses from people saying, what? what? I thought you'd been saying don't use Spinrite on SSDs because it'll wear them out and it won't fix them. And, you know, and we have had now many testimonials from, pers- from people like this guy who have had Spinrite successfully re- repair their SSDs. The reason they're failing is the same reason hard drives are failing. And that is the, the, the nature of the world, unfortunately, is economics. Everything is economics. And engineers are being forced to, to operate right at the limit of technology. They could make SSDs that were much more reliable. And arguably, the first SSDs were. They were very expensive and they were they were not nearly as dense, but they were very reliable, just like the earlier hard disks, which because they were cramming fewer fewer bits on the surface, the bits were bigger and they were easier to find. And so what's happened with SSDs is remember that the technology is like a little tank. It's a it's a it's it, think of it as a, a tank of electrons. And we and there's some leakage in the tank, just sort of natural migration of the electrons out of the tank, like 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 a very slowly leaky bucket. It, the, it, unfortunately, the the tank is a little porous, and and the idea is that you either you either empty the tank to have it be a zero, or you fill the tank full of electrons for it to be a one, and everybody's happy, except that the problem is. To increase the density to get more more bits in the same in, in like in, in a per given unit area, um, they've made the tanks smaller, so the the tanks have a smaller capacity, which means there's less difference between a full tank and an empty tank. 
in absolute terms. And then they went even, to make matters worse, they went from using these cells, tanks, which only had a, were only either empty or full. Someone said, hey, you know, we could store more virtual bits per cell if we did multi-level tanks. That is, if we filled the tank a quarter full, half full, three quarters full, or full, then what that would mean is there were four different potential fullnesses, and we know four states gives you two bits. So by the using so-called MLC, multi-level cell SSDs, they've been able to double the density kind of for free, but not for, at the same level of reliability. Every single one of my SSDs is SLC, single-level cell. They're not affordable, even today. I mean, they, I, they are really expensive. And the reason is that in order to get high-density SLC SSDs, you need to use a lot more chips. So, you know, they're just more expensive to, to, to produce. But, for example, I'm using only... SL, I don't have any MLC SSDs anywhere I'm because I just, you know, I'm old school. And I realize that manufacturers are always going to push the boundary. They're going to they're make these reliable enough. So SSDs work sort of the same way today that hard drives do. They're reliable enough. But because they've pushed the boundaries of the technology to get the density up in order to be as competitive as they can and to keep their costs as low as they can, we have problems like this one. And and once again, Spinrite can you can do a read-only scan of an SSD anytime you want, and it is just as good for it as a read-only scan of a physical hard drive with Spinrite. And why? It's because just like a hard drive where I've said the hard drive only knows it has a problem reading a sector when it tries. It has, it's not omniscient. It doesn't know anything about the sectors floating around out there that it hasn't visited recently. So it's only when it tries to read it that it's able to gauge whether or not it can and how much error correction is required. And that's the other part of this. SSDs use error correction just like hard drives. Because these bits are flaky, they've unfortunately made them flaky by 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 over by 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 forcing them to have too much capacity in too little physical size. Um, they're now relying on error correction to make up for the fact that the bits are coming back bad. So just like hard drives, if you run Spinrite on an SSD at level two, it will do a read-only scan. And it may be terrifying the SSD controller. It it will be showing it that it's got problems, and it will it will be relocating sectors of SSD in exactly the same way hard drives relocate sectors on the physical surface. And if there's a problem that that the SSD controller cannot fix and relocate, then if you're on level two, that allows Spinrite to go to work and do its data recovery work, which uh, is clearly what did succeed for this guy who, who tweeted me last week. So that's the whole story. Um, that's cool. 
it is the case that unfortunately that the you know the passion for cramming as many bits in a small space as cheaply as and inexpensively as possible well actually cheap in both senses of the word um is is creating a problem it's mm. no longer the case that they are super they're they're certainly reliable physically the reason i have them in my laptops is laptops tend to get bounced <laughs> a lot more than than you know stationary systems and so there i think a, a laptop really is the right well and for example remember ipods used to have hard drives in them that was nuts and of course spinrite was able to fix those too very often so so but you're not recommending against them in desktops are you no 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 i i, I would say they are probably i don't really even know if i would say they're more reliable than hard drives i i at this point they're not they're, less reliable they're not less reliable i would say the benefit is they are non-mechanical right and that's a good thing sometimes and they're you super know, fast i mean yes and there you go super fast <laughs> there's the benefit i mean they're massively speedy yeah to give you an idea though of how belt and suspenders i am the latest server that i built uh, for us has six owc single level cell ssd drives running in i'm sorry four four drives the highest reliability i could find they are also the the owc drives they're they're massively over provisioned that's the term used for the amount of unused space available for for relocation they call over provisioning um and then i run those four drives in raid six (laughs) which is one which is full 100 percent redundancy any two of them can fail to read and i still am able to read perfectly yeah so you know i just don't ever want that to be a problem and you know you invest once and then you're not having to make trips to the data center all the time. I just got the uh, new iMac that has, Apple's got this new thing they call a Fusion Drive, which is two drives that look like one. One's an SSD and one's a, a spinning drive, and it's a total of three terabytes. It's not RAID. It's not an Intel technology that uh, is similar. It's their own technology software built into the operating system, Lion and Mountain Lion. And what it does is kind of interesting is it moves most, the most accessed stuff to the SSD and the less yep. accessed stuff stays on the spinning drive. And it's purely for speed. But, I, but I, you know, having just installed this computer, so I haven't, it hasn't tuned itself yet, but I'm, now, I'm getting 290 plus megabytes per second write speed and 430 megabytes read speed. Uh, on this thing without having it optimized you know and i presume it will get faster on the stuff that i need to be faster so right. this is very close to a us to an ssd drive direct ssd drive is very very fast ssd right. is even faster four or five hundred megabytes per second reading well and it really makes sense for reading of course ssds don't write quickly fast, they, right. they read quickly and the reason is that the only way the way you write to an ssd is you drain all of the tanks throughout a region and then you selectively refill them. Right. And you also need to do that at a higher voltage. So th- there, there, there's actually a, a, a voltage, um, a, a, a voltage booster in the SSD that brings the voltage up to a couple hundred volts, and that's needed. Remember, we've talked before that the way that the SSD works is that you pierce the insulation and you you squirt the electrons through an insulating layer. You to do that, you need a lot of pressure. 
and voltage is pressure. So, so the SSDs bring the pressure up, squirt the electrons through an insulator, and strand them out on a little, a little conductive blip, <laughs> essentially, in the chip. And that represents a, a one bit. And, and, and the problem is, over time, the, the, the integrity of that insulating barrier breaks down specifically because we keep squirting electrons through it. It just, it, it hurts it. Sensing the charge is easy. We're able to do that electrostatically. That, that's why we can read effortlessly, very quickly, and, and well, with and no it's overhead. Ran, it's random access. There's no seek time either. So. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But I have to say, I mean, you make it sound like the writes are slower. They're still faster than spinning drives. I mean, they're fast, the writes. Here's a... Right. Yeah, this is the uh, other world computing solid state in my uh, MacBook Pro Retina. 308 megabytes a second write, 500 megabytes per second read. Uh, yeah. that, that means I'm reading a gigabyte every two seconds. It's really fast. Wow. Really, really fast. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I don't put, I only use SSDs in everything. Uh, yeah. I'm pleased to see how well the, the Fusion Drive performs. Um, given that e- now, even when it's new, even when it's new, it hasn't optimized at all, and uh, it's uh, it's got the three terabyte capacity, which wow. is nice. Um, so uh, I will do a little ad, and then we will get to your questions. How about that, ladies and cool. germs? How about it? Uh, our our show today brought to you by our good friends at Spinrite. We're, and I'm sorry, did I say Spinrite? <laughs> yes, I did. It is by. Well, you might think so not, after all. It's of not that. not completely inaccurate, but uh, I was thinking more of Citrix, who do the great go to assist program. If you're in IT or support, uh, software or hardware support, or maybe you're an IT guy, or maybe you're an IT person who would like to become a managed service provider, this is it. This is the tool you need to get you over the hump to that next level. You're probably familiar with GoToAssist Remote Access. It's the best remote access for support people. Things that are, you know, cut, you know, it's remote access plus stuff that you need. Things like Assay that shows you what software is running, what security software, what operating system version down to the point, point, point. Uh, it, can you do eight sessions at once? Unattended sessions if your customer allows. Things like that. But now they've added some more features to GoToAssist that makes it really everything you need for uh, managed support. You've got the remote support. They've got a new service desk module, which lets you track issues and resolve them. Uh, it also includes release and configuration management, which makes that very easy to keep track of it if you've got a lot of desktops. Um, you've got a branded self-service portal for your clients so they can report tickets. And it's your logo. It's not Citrix. It's your logo there. And then this monitoring, which we've mentioned before, that gives you a chance to proactively track performance so that you know what the problems are going to be before they happen, before they enter the service desk tracking system so you can look like a support hero. Live support to PC, Mac, and mobile devices, unattended computers, um, inventory of everything. And I want you to try this free for 30 days. Every bit of this absolutely free for 30 days. Uh, visit to gotoassist.com. And uh, the, the offer code for this is security. And you're going to check boxes. And you, I would say do all three so you can see all three. Remote support, service desk, and monitoring. Three essential support tools in one easy cloud-based tool set. You can provide live or unattended support to any PC, Mac, or mobile device, even from your iPad or Android, which is really pretty cool. 
keep track of it with a service desk. 30 days free. I, I shouldn't have to say any more. If you this is it, you know who you are. If you're the one who's in charge of keeping this stuff running, this is for you. Go to assist.com, try it free button. The promo code is security. Speaking of security, you're watching Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, the explainer in chief. And we've got ten questions from our audience, our listener-driven potpourri, as Steve puts it. <laughs> Episode 159. And we do this every, pretty much every other uh, week. So it's uh, that's how we got to such a high number. Starting with Bob uh, Iris, a listener in the USA who offers a minor correction, Steve. He says in episode 385, you refer to the, and this was an offhand comment you made, by the way, the Bernoulli effect principle used to float the hard drive's head off the surface on the rigid disk and commonly called the Venturi effect, but you were actually describing the so-called boundary layer effect. They're related in that the Bernoulli effect is occurring within the boundary layer. P.S. With your audience, you just can't get away with anything, can you, Steve? <laughs> I think you got it right, because I think you started saying Venturi effect, and then you said the Bernoulli effect. Yes, and uh, I just I I thought I would share Bob's note, and it, that it is about the boundary layer, which is true. Um, and what's interesting is you remember when there were Bernoulli drives? Yes, we went through that phase. They, were, it they was, weren't uh, fixed discs; they were rigid discs. But well, they, you mean you mean you mean they they weren't rigid discs; they were flexible discs. Right. Yes. Um, That's and, what was and, unique and, about them. They did the same kind of floating head thing, but on a on a flexible disc. Exactly. And what's really interesting is we think of floppies as spinning. Well, those of, of us who do think of floppies spinning. Um, What's you know, a floppy, Steve? I've, I've never <laughs> we, we, heard of we that. We old school people. Um, <laughs> you, we, you think of them as spinning very slowly. Um, and in uh -uh. fact, they do spin very slowly. I mean, you can you know you can see them spinning around. If you ever looked at the hub of a spinning floppy disk, it's not going fast. What IBM determined, though, was that that's as fast as they could go. Wow! Before the head would start coming off the ah. off the disk. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it turns out that you actually don't have to go fast for there to be enough air pulled along by the by the spin of the disc in order to get under the head and for it to no longer be in contact. The floppy technology is more like the magnetic tape technology, which has to be in contact with the head. Hard drive technology, which is what the Bernoulli drives used, is a, is a deliberately a floating head technology. And I remember the in the pictures that Bernoulli... Uh, the Bernoulli company had that made the Bernoulli drives, they showed their head pushing down and, and the disc actually flexing under the head. It was, it was, you know, it was, there was a, there was an air bearing, but the, and, you know, and, and the head was, was, was deforming the disc a little bit as it flew, but it was not in contact with the head or w w with the disc, which by the way, was in a removable cartridge. These were large, high capacity, I think at 40 megabytes, which, Ooh, boy, back then, uh, for, uh, high capacity uh, cartridge Ooh. technology. <laughs> <laughs> Forty megabytes. Oh, you never fill those we've, up. You know. We've come a long way, baby. Jared in Australia raises some useful concerns about the crash plan cloud backup. Going around trying to find the top backup solutions, I decided to rewatch the cloud solutions episode you did on Security Now. 
I decided to put both Crash Plan and Carbonite to the test. Unfortunately, Crash Plan requires Java to use, just to let you know. This itself made me switch back to using Carbonite. Even with limitations of its own with file type, at least we know there's no additional security associated, or security issues, I should say, associated. Right. Since Java is so down with patches right now, the question I always think when an application requires such software is, is my data still going to be there? You know, there now, are a lot of apps that still use Java. Minecraft does. Uh, a lot of our Citrix apps do. That's not the same as Java in the browser, right? Which precisely is why I chose the question. Yeah. Yes. I wanted to I, – I thought this was great. First of all, what I, dis, what I discovered when I was doing the cloud, the cloud Backup Solutions podcast was j many of these multi-platform solutions are Java-based sure. for exactly the reason we were talking about at the top of the show, yeah. which is you write it once and you can run it anywhere. And, and for an application to be running on Java, exactly as you say, Leo, is completely different from um, – from the browser to invoke a Java applet when you visit a malicious website. So definitely worth keeping these separate. Um, the, these cloud backup solutions, are while they're Java-based, they're not Java browser-based, and that's where the problem is. And so, for example, if you were to use the security control panel to turn off Java in the browser, then Java on your machine for example, using these backup solutions still works just fine, and and you're okay. And and the fact that Java has security issues doesn't mean that the users, uh, that is the developers using Java, are at fault for using Java. That is, that's, if you see not, what I mean. It's, well, it's but like yeah, it's but not, that's neither here nor there. I mean, it's not their fault. But if it's a security issue, you still wouldn't want to use it. Uh, but it's not right. It's not the same. It, I guess, it. I mean, the security issue is if somebody gave you a program to run on your system and you trusted them, they could make a dangerous program. Yeah. But that's any but, program. But, and exactly. And XE is far more powerful <laughs> Actually, than a Java true. virtual good machine point. program. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it's So really if they're going to give you a, a malicious program, they're not going to give it to you in Java. <laughs> They're going to give you an XE. They don't even need an exploit. They just say, run right, this. And, besides, <laughs> and none of our users would be able to to use it if it were in Java because they've all uninstalled Java right, if right, they had yeah, it right. in the first place. But that so, is the yeah. disadvantage also to uninstalling Java is that you, ha you and, have that issue. And also, if you think about how detailed the exploit was that I read, you could see oh, yeah. that it, it, was, it was like winding its way through a circuitous route to get to a particular function where it was able to trick it into changing your security settings that then gave you remote access that you wouldn't have otherwise had. So so here again, this is, as I've discussed before, Java allows all these things, and then they try to put a barrier up to prevent you from getting to them. That's, that's fundamentally error-prone. Right. You don't want power, which you then have to firewall. You'd really rather not have that capability at all, then there's nothing to, you know, there, there's no possibility of figuring out a way to get around what, what's blocking it. But unfortunately, Java is a is a powerful environment. But these exploits are specific to remote browser-based implementation. And, I, and that's important to understand, too. Very good. Question uh, three, or, uh, yeah, three. 
Mike King, on the eastern shore of Maryland, notes that helium-filled hard drives may lift Western Digital to the top. Have you heard about this, Steve? In either way, what do you think? It's a Computer Word article about hard drives, not with... I guess hard drives have, what, air inside them? They're no Yes, they normally, normally run... At atmospheric pressure, there's there's typically a little multi-hole filter in the lid, in, like in the cover of the hard drive. If you look to somewhere, equalize, equalize pressure exactly. Yeah. And so air is allowed to pass both ways through that in order to to keep the pressure equalized. What otherwise Western, they would like you know wouldn't work well at altitude and things like that. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Well, because if if you were at high altitude with low outside pressure, then the lid would bulge, and Lord knows what effect that, <laughs> that would have. Be good. <laughs> if you if yelling at a drive messes it up, a bulging lid's got to be a problem. <laughs> so, so very very clever. Western Digital realized that the density of helium is, I think, it's one seventh. The density of air. That's why helium balloons rise and go up in the air, is that helium is so much lower density than air. They realized if they switched to a helium environment, everything changes. It turns out that a substantial amount of the power that a drive uses is just overcoming the air friction of the disc platter surfaces wow. as they're spinning. No and so kidding. the motor is working to spin the platters at a constant speed against the, the, the drag of the air. And if you switch to helium, it dramatically cuts the drag on the discs. It also completely changes the physics of the head disc interface, as we might imagine. We've been talking about, you know, the boundary layer and all that. And it turns out that it's a it's going to and, and that allows them to increase the density further because it allows them to fly the head closer at higher speed than they've ever been able to. So they can spin faster, get the head closer, and the a closer head means a greater signal coupling between the disc and the head, and that means more bits, baby. So anyway, this is very cool. They've got patents on it. Um, they've beat Seagate and uh, is it? It's pretty much other? those two. <laughs> it's Western Digital, Seagate, and there's another well, foreign there's Hitachi, manufacturer. But no, Hitachi, Hitachi is Western Digital. No, but they're no, Western. Hitachi got bought by IBM, or they bought IBM. No, it says in fact that Hitachi was the ones who developed these helium-filled drives for Western Digital. Okay, that's why it's so confusing. I, Hitachi yeah. bought IBM's disk store. Business. Right, the travel store, and, and, or travel right, tra store yeah, line. travel store district, and then Western Digital bought Hitachi. <laughs> mm. I okay. think it's shaken out to really only a couple, and there might be some like <laughs> small ones around. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought that's very cool. It Helium is great. Drives it is great, and and when they when the drive Western dies, Digital has forty five percent of drives. Seagate is forty eight percent. So, so wow. there's somebody who has seven percent. I don't know who it wow. is, but it, <laughs> they're not important. Yeah, and 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 when the drive dies, Leo, you you, you could crack could, the lid and suck suck out the helium. Exactly. There's a guy who calls a radio show and does that every time. Oh it's goodness! It's like grow up. Okay, <laughs> that's funny. Once Luca in Verona, Italia suggests a possible 
UPNP solution. Stephen Leo. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished playing through episode 385, and I thought of a possible solution for the listener asking about the PS3 and UPNP. He could get a second router and enable UPNP on that, daisy-chain it to the first one, then place it in the first router's DMZ. This way... He could have only the PS3 connected to the second router, which has UPnP capabilities, and keep the rest of his machines safe under the current network. He'd also be protected from any hypothetical attacks, exploiting vulnerabilities in the PS3, since it would be also isolated from the rest of the network. Keep up with the good work, Luke. And that's very clever. You um, thought of that. Wait a minute, isn't that that triangulation yep, router triangle... Thing. Yep, we, we, we've covered the idea of using routers as like one-way valves right. and the idea of putting them in series. But you need three to do what you wanted to do. Well, you really do because technically if the PS3 were infected, it, could, it has visibility into the network outside of it, which would be your private network. So you really need a Y connection with, uh, with a, a one router for the PSP and another router for the local network. That way, both of the interior routers are feeding to a third public one. But he is correct, and I hadn't thought of this, that you could then you could put this, the, the, the router that requires UPnP to be enabled, you could put that, set that, that router's IP as the DMZ for the primary public router so that unsolicited traffic would automatically be, be routed to that router where UPnP would have been dynamically opening ports to allow access to the PS3. Meanwhile, your, your second internal router would have UPnP disabled and would have essentially be barricading itself against both the PS3 and any mischief it might get up to and the outside network. So, you know, it's, it's not lightweight, but routers are pretty cheap these days. So, yeah. Anyway, I thought that was, that was yeah, clever. clever. That's, that's a, very, yeah. a variation I hadn't thought of before. So thank you, Luca. Bill, Burling, Bill Burlingame in Huntsville, Alabama, has a question about the Quiet Canine Project. Steve, I heard your update on the unit you're designing to stop dogs from sustained barking, number 385, for those of you looking for that story. Is there a chance that once the design is completed, a kit could be made available? Has this guy not been paying attention? <laughs> if not, I hope the list of parts are readily available to people who don't happen to live in a large metropolitan area. My first choice would be a unit that is already built. If you don't have the time and resources to offer one, would you grant permission to someone to sell units based on your design? So that was a new twist that I yeah. thought I would share. First yeah. of all, you and I did talk about my intention to open source, open design everything. There is a company called DigiKey, which is fantastic, and all of the parts are sourced from there, and I've got all of their a parts list with all of their their own numbers, so it's sort of a virtual kit. Uh, and one of the people who is participating over in the, in the Google group, it turns out that um, uh, Spark, Spark, Spark Fun. Even, Spark, Spark Fun. Fun. Spark Fun has a has a division which produces PC boards 
at low volume. Mm -hmm. What they do is you're able to get a PC board like that. Normally, the problem is you just can't get one little PC board because the the PC board fab people want to fabricate them in huge sheets and then divide them up. Uh. Well, what Spark Fun's um, company did, I think it's called Batch PCB, if I remember. I think that's the name of the company, Batch PCB. So the idea is everybody, there's like all these projects there. Anyone who wants a PC board puts in an order. It's not fast. You have to wait some number of weeks typically, but even that's not bad turnaround for uh, for PC boards. And what happens is as soon as they get enough of them for the total real estate, they submit that as a, as a single composite board, which is then broken up into pieces. So it's very clever. And so the bottom line is that one way or another, the answer is yes, Bill, there will be a way for somebody who can build these or know somebody who can, you know, hey, do me a favor, build this for me, um, to essentially have a, a, a kit. I, I really myself don't want to be in the hardware business. I also don't have any problem if somebody else wants to build them and sell them. And if they do a good job of that, I could certainly refer people to them. I am going to still make a bunch of beta test units myself for our listeners who have this problem because I want to acquire more information about, you know, whether and to what degree this this whole approach works. So, yes, uh, it's again, it's still premature. People write to me telling me that the quiet canine pages are all blank except for one or two. And it's like, yes, I know because I don't have anything to put there yet. I'm we're we're working frantically over in the Google group so much so that people have asked, how do I unsubscribe to this? Because there's just too many postings. It's like, I understand. Interesting. Question six, Mac Morris, Columbia, South Carolina. He's worried about the CBC information leak. Steve and Leo, thanks for the show, blah, blah, blah. I have a question regarding cipher blockchaining. If Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just read this and don't try to understand it while you're reading it. Good, because nothing will come through. But I'm going to read it as if I understand it so that you can understand it. That's good. If I understand correctly, the first block of n bytes is XORed with an initialization vector. The resulting bytes are used to XOR the next block. This continues until all blocks have been XORed. If the key size and block size are different, wouldn't this result in information leakage? For example, if the key is 8 bytes and the block size is 10 bytes, then the remaining 2 bytes would be the same after XORing is complete. I'm assuming that the remaining bytes are XORed with zeros. That, that may be a false assumption. You could just wrap around. Wouldn't anything that is XORed with the zeros result in the same bytes as the input? Hmm? If the key is larger than the block size, the remaining bytes of the key would always be present at the beginning of the cipher text. Well, that would be bad. Yeah. If the block size is larger than... I suspect this has been solved, but we'll see. If the block size is larger than the key... Then the remaining bytes of the plain text will be present at the beginning of the ciphertext, revealing the length of the key. While the length of the key may not be sufficient for the entire cipher to be compromised, it is information leakage nonetheless. Additionally, the first few bytes may contain information that does not need to be plain text. If this is correct, would it be a good idea to pad the smaller item with ones instead of zeros to prevent this leakage? Or is this how it's done anyway? Thanks to keep up the good work. Mac Morris, Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. So there's a couple problems with um, 
what Mac has described. Um, the the reason we do anything called a, a cryptographic mode, which is different than a cipher, the is is to keep information from being leaked. With a with a cipher, the actual algorithm, it takes some number of bits of plain text and converts them, sort of maps them into a completely different and unpredictable same number of bits in the output. But the problem is every time you put the same thing in, you get the same thing out. So if we if all we did was encrypt a file by enciphering blocks of bytes, then patterns could be seen. That is, there would be information leakage because someone looking at the ciphertext might see, oh, look, here, this block is the same as that block, which means that the plain text must also be the same. So while it doesn't disclose what the plain text is, it tells you that it's the same. And there are, for example, protocols that are very structured where there's certain, like they have headers and trailers and, and so forth. They, have, they contain structuring information. For example, a JPEG of a certain size, it'll have in its header descriptions about the type of encoding, that it is a JPEG, the, the height and width and so forth. Those things could be figured out. If you then knew what the, you would then know what the plain text was that corresponded to the ciphertext. And if you found that same ciphertext anywhere else, then you, you would know that it just happened to be the same plain text again. So what we need to do is we need to prevent the, that case where the same input data results, in input, the plain text results in the same ciphertext output. The way we do that is we, we, in addition to having a key, and remember the key is what determines the mapping between plain text and ciphertext. Additionally, we have something called an initialization vector or IV. The initialization vector is always the size of the block. That is the size of the cipher, the, the like for AES is 128-bit cipher. So the initialization vector is 128 bits. That's chosen at random. Doesn't matter what it is. And in fact, it can even be in public. It can be known. So that's, that gets us started because we, we XOR the plain text with the initialization vector. Then we encrypt it. Then we take the encrypted output of the first encryption and use that to XOR the plain text of the next block. And then we encrypt that to get the second block. We take that second block and use that to XOR the plain text for the third block as we encrypt it. So that's why it's called chaining. We're, we're, we're creating a chain from one block to the next, taking the output from the pre previous block and using that to scramble the bits going in to the to the succeeding block, and 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 so the beauty is that it it creates a it creates an ever changing scramble, and remember that a good cipher for an input is it gives us a pseudo random output. It is it is absolutely pseudo random. It is there's no way of knowing if you don't know the key 
what input gave you what output. And so really smart cryptographers have thought about this a lot and said, yep, there's no way to gain any information that we don't want given. So that's how CBC, cipher blockchaining, works and, yeah. and why we need it. I thought it was the Canadian Broadcasting Company. <laughs> Tim in St. Louis has already got a hot flash drive. Steve, I'm sorry I'm a bit behind, but listening to 381 where you discuss a new flash technology that creates heat to prevent the drive from wearing out. On Black Friday, I bought a, bought a new flash drive from PNY that was on sale. Unlike my existing drives, I noticed this one in particular gets extremely hot to the touch, almost almost too hot to touch, actually. I assume that particular new technology is not out in the wild yet from the way you spoke of it. Yet this drive is hot for some reason. Even if it weren't designed for that purpose, could I have just gotten lucky getting a hot running drive? Is there a chance it could prolong the life of the drive? Or is heat like that not the same? Also, would keeping the drives in a warm area be beneficial? Thanks for keeping us informed. Well, that's Tim. an interesting idea, Tim. Um, I think you should probably send it back. No, but, you uh, know, know, I have a USB key uh, that's quite good. Uh, it's it's very fast, and uh, it's uh, USB 3, and it gets fairly hot. I mean, I don't think no, it's unusual. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've I don't think never it's noticed heat. Really? I've never noticed heat from mine, but for what it's worth, we're dealing with, okay, what I was referring to is a new heat annealing process. Right. That's different. And that's not the drive getting hot. <laughs> yes, and, and it is... It's spot annealing at the molecular level with extremely high heat, like 600 degrees Fahrenheit. So, so way hotter than just, you know, power running through the flash drive and warming it up as a consequence. So I don't think, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think the level of heat you're going to get will be helping to anneal the flash drive, I would worry that it's, you know, going to hurt it over the long term. But, you know, they're robust against temperature. So that's probably not a problem. But no, the answer is that's we're we're a different level of heat. It's hundreds of degrees hotter, many hundreds. And also done, you know, sort of like on a microscopic instantaneous level where nothing else has a chance to melt before the annealing process gets done. And we're probably several years away from seeing that in production. But, boy, will that be nice. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was doing sit-ups. Uh, <laughs> don't ask. Don't ask why. Uh, <laughs> I only got two. I was trying to do 30, so... Take take your time on this answer. Stephen okay. Knight in Brisbane, Australia, wonders about ransomware. Steve, over the Christmas break, the Australian media covered ransomware, where your data is encrypted and you have to pay a fee to get access to it. Or not. This is probably the mafia, after all. The media coverage didn't really get into prevention. My first thought was effective backups. You could wipe the affected de device and restore the data, as well as firewalls, etc., can ransomware be detected by traditional scanning software? And what are the best steps for prevention? Okay, Leo, you do sit up. Okay. I'm going to answer the question. So um, ransomware, I think, is a, a really clever idea. I'm not endorsing it, of course. It's bad. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. If a virus gets in your computer, then the question is, what is it? able to do. I mean, normally it's 
you know, able to use your machine as part of a of a botnet in order to DOS other sites. Um, maybe it watches what you're doing in the hopes of being able to see a tr- credit card transaction or or intercept banking work or or something. But the other really interesting idea is that it could encrypt your system, and which is really an interesting sort of catch twenty two. I mean, if it just wanted to hurt you, it could just reformat your drive. It could you know wipe out your files. But then then it doesn't have anything. If it wants to extract value from you what better to, thing to do than hide your own files from you ransoming your access to them by making a payment so when, when this surfaced a few years ago i thought wow that's <laughs> diabolical isn't that clever and, yeah and really clever so um uh i had, a call, course, <laughs> I had a call over the weekend by yeah. a guy he had ransomware it says it's the fbi right they're smart they're getting smart they have big FBI logo on and stuff. But then it says, uh, you, you, but you have a fine. You have a $300 fine. We will release it. You know, your, your, your data has been uh, blocked because of a violation of the Patriot Act or something. Wow. And we'll unblock it. But then, but then they ask for the payment in these um, cards, these uh, prepaid cards. <laughs> you go to the 7-Eleven to get it. <laughs> And I, I, said, yeah, I asked the guy, I said, do you think the FBI uses uh, prepaid cards for, uh, for fine payment? Does that sound, uh, does that sound right? money pack? That's the name of them, the money pack cards. In fact, wow. that's why they call this the money pack uh, Trojan. Wow. It's ridiculous. Just yeah. Ridiculous. So the bad news is it is in all other regards it's a malware virus. like any yeah. other. Yeah. You know, you, you don't know where you got it. You went to a website. Something happened. You had Java enabled on your browser. There was a JavaScript exploit. You downloaded a bad piece of software, that, and it had a Trojan in it. You know, who knows what. One way or another, you got this junk on your, on your system. And as we've discussed, a antiviral software is having an increasingly difficult time because the, the, the code is encrypted. It's sometimes it's polymorphic encrypted so that every instance of it looks different. It's very difficult for, for, for software to inspect the outside and see whether it's a problem. So oh, I this, have, this I have, is good. I just pulled up the warning. FBI anti-piracy warning. All activity of this computer has been recorded. If you use a webcam, <laughs> videos and pictures were saved for future identification. And then it gives you a barcode. And wow. then it says your IP address. It says, your IP address and host name were recorded for future identification. Your computer has been locked. Illegally downloaded material, MP3s, movies, or software have been located on your computer. And then oh. it quotes U.S. copyright code. Possession wow. is punishable, etc., etc. To unlock your computer and avoid other legal consequences, you are obligated to pay a fine of $400. Payment of the fine is done by Green Dot Money Pack Payment Voucher. <laughs> <laughs> Failure to comply with FBI anti-piracy warnings could result in criminal charges and possible imprisonment of up to three years in country jail. So I think oh. country jail is probably the giveaway that this. If the yeah. if the money pack didn't get you, the country jail might get you. I wonder if there if you could be in city jail or if they just say you're not. Oh be in no, country. you got to go to country jail, my friend, and you know what that means. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Um, wow. But, of course, they need to anonymize the payment, right? 
Unless, yes, and, oh, actually, the best thing to do would be get a credit card number, and then they could just keep charging you. Some of them Well, do that's that. why the, tra- the, the traditional hack was to use Western Union money grams. Right, right. That was the way the Russian mafia was always extracting money is because it was a wire transfer. And, right. baby, when that is gone, it is gone. Right. It is, you know, it's over. Yeah. So there's no way to recoup wow. that one. Yeah. So, unfortunately, um, there isn't anything, Stephen, that is special about ransomware. It's just a particular breed a very clever sort of uh, late model attack, which, which you know, leverages the the malware's presence in your machine in a in an interesting way. It doesn't just wipe you out because it wants money from you, and you know. But I, I should say that a backup is always kind of the last resort uh, protection against a, a corruption. Yes. Of any yes. kind, including malware. If you do, if you do have a good backup, at least you can wipe and reinstall, which is really the yeah, best way to Yeah, I would say, you know, if it's if if it's easier for you to use grandma's green eye money card, then <laughs> go ahead and try that. And if that doesn't work, then maybe restore from a backup. Mike Robinson in Michigan updates us one year after Reaver and Linksys WPS. Has it been a year? Yes, Leo. A year. Yes. This is, of course, a hack that allows you, even if you're using a secure WPA2 password, allows somebody to break into your system trivially. In four, four to ten hours, and typically half of that time, somebody just doing a passive network sniff is able to obtain your routers. Nice. Is able to obtain access to your router. Nice. Stephen Leo, I think Linksys needs another black eye. It's been over a year since Reaver, which is the tool that allows you to do this, free, open, widely available, yep. was developed and released. And most of Linksys routers have yet to be updated. Remember, Linksys routers, even though they had a disabled WPS button in some cases, it didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just pretended. Now- and click that link right. and look at Cisco's list of routers which are still just flapping in the breeze. To their credit, they posted this list quite quickly. Oh, too bad. They're, they're, they must have known we were about to check it. They say, we are currently performing system maintenance in the knowledge base. Please try again later. No kidding. <laughs> oh, well, for what it's worth, for what it's worth, about what there's like maybe... 50 routers, and I think maybe a third of them are not vulnerable. The rest are will, will are TBD, to be determined when... They're not going to update them. No, no, you're right. They're not going to do anything about it. They're, They're just going to, gonna, you know, just like, oh, well, not, you know. Too late. We, if we wait long enough, product. they'll be obsolete. It's a consumer product. Good luck. <laughs> uh really goes to show, he goes on to say, that Cisco doesn't care all that much about the security of its customers. I have a WRT54G2V1. That's a pretty old router. I gave up waiting, so I flashed it. The nice thing is it's an old router that's easily flashed. Yes. With DDWRT, thanks to know-how, our show, we did a whole know-how episode on flashing your router. You get, you, Frankly, you've got much better firmware on there anyway. Tomato or uh, DDWRT are much, much better. Yeah. And don't have WPS at all. There is still no... You know, when you... I didn't realize it had been a year. When you talked about Reaver and uh, WPS, you pointed out it would be a, a t- almost trivial thing to fix. 
Yes. That, but what what they're doing is they're just disabling WPS, right? Nobody has yet put out a, a WPS that's safe. Correct. Can you believe it? Wow. Just stupid. I know. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah, and, and I mean, what this tells us is there has to be massive pressure on a company before they will, it'll overcome their inertia. Right. To fix it, it's got to be a big black eye, you know. And we, we just, you know, why Oracle rushes out Department of Java of patch? Department of Homeland Microsoft Security patch. has to make an yes. announcement. Yes, and you have to put it on the NBC nightly news. Yes. Meanwhile, Reaver is sitting there. This, you know, as a proof of concept. There's plenty of code now around, and and you know, bad guys can sit, you know, somewhere. With, with secured WP, you know, WPA encrypted routers, right. and in a few hours gain access. Yeah. Question ten wraps it up today. Peter Smith in London having trouble with GoDaddy and the new five dot zero dot zero dot zero slash eight public range. We talked about that a few episodes before. I've been a listener for over three years now. I enjoy the podcast greatly. It is enjoyable. And informative with enough technical information to make it interesting and informative without swamping a listener. He's obviously a pretty high-level listener. I get swamped almost every episode. We've recently been allocated our own public IP address range from RIPE within the 5.0.0.0-8 range. This was allocated to RIPE in November 2010, and I believe they started giving those to customers in 2012. As you remember, this was previously used by Hamachi... Uh, for their log me in and other VPN solutions. It's kind of the other way around. Log me in used it for Hamachi and other VPN solutions. We've run into issues since using the IP range to source NAT our office connections. We've run into issues since using the IP range to source NAT our office connections, as it seems probably that people are blocking this with an IPS system. Both GoDaddy and Adobe are unreachable when I use an IP address in this range. However, when I switched the NAT to another IP address, I can connect. Oh, that's interesting. Obviously, GoDaddy uh, is used to hosting many sites and servers, and as a result, we don't have access to any of them. Interestingly, uh, with GoDaddy, ICPM traffic is unimpeded, but both UDP and TCP are stopped before the first hop on their network. I've contacted... ICPM is uh, ping, right? Yeah, uh, uh, actually, that was a typo from him, ICMP. right, yeah, yeah, ICMP. Internet I, Control Message Protocol. I have contacted both Adobe and GoDaddy, and they are currently investigating the issue. I'm currently interested in finding out which IPS systems they are both using. That's the intrusion. This would be a firewall or an intrusion protection system. Since this is probably causing the issue, however, I think it likely they might be reluctant to give out this information. Obviously, this is quite frustrating, and I would like to know what next steps you would take if it were your IP range, especially as I think that it is likely this issue will pop up repeatedly for us. Peter, what an interesting point. So this is actually not unexpected. Um, the backstory, our listeners, our, our frequent listeners will know, is that as the Internet began to run out of IPv4 space, the traditional... 32-bit addressing scheme, which uses the dotted quad uh, approach, a previously unallocated block, which was huge, 16 million IPs, all beginning with five, were taken off of the shelf and put into service. 
this was the private it was it was a private ip range only because no one had used it very much like the 10 dot range but 10 dot is officially for private networks 5 dot was simply not yet in use so what happened is over eager router configurers that is human people who set up internet routers and i've seen this many times in 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 routing tables they will they will block the private address ranges they they'll, they'll block 10. everything 172.16 through 172.31 um and they'll also block 192.168 because those are known to be private meaning that no public router ought to ever see packets without addressing. And they somehow they get out on the Internet. I mean, the Internet's a crazy place. You know, if it can happen, it will. And so the point is there's really no one to send that stuff to. So routers are often set up to just drop those. I've also seen tables which drop all of the previously unallocated ranges some some engineer, some internet engineer somewhere thought they were being clever by saying, well, five dot is also unallocated. I'm going to block that because there should never be any five dot traffic. Well, that was once upon a time, but it's not any longer. So unfortunately, it's probably not the endpoints firewall or intrusion protection system, the IPS that he refers to. It's Lord knows what. It's a router somewhere out on the internet. Now, you there is it is possible with various trace route programs not to use an ICMP message, which he says has no trouble getting through, but to you can use TCP or UDP protocol using a um, in, in, in a trace routing fashion, simply by by changing the TTL, the time to live. Making it making the TCP or UDP packet expire while it's en route, and that way you could determine which router was doing the blocking of the five dot address on those protocols, but not on ICMP. So it might be uh, worth 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 looking at. Um, uh, but that's what's going on. Is it's just it's it's like it's it's pure legacy. There is legacy. Legacy tables in routers on the internet that have not been updated to reflect the fact that ranges that used to never be seen are now being seen. It was really never necessary for anyone to block those, but somebody was just a little bit overzealous, and they did. There you have it. Our bonus from Mike in Daytona, Florida. There is a new Peter F. Hamilton book, The Great North Road, 900 pages big. Have you and, already started it? <laughs> oh no, I'm I'm all my time is being sucked into catching up on the prior three seasons of The Good Wife, ah. uh, which I'm enjoying. And when I'm not doing that, I'm 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 plowed into the uh, the troubleshooter project for the Quiet Canine um, uh, effort, and again making fabulous progress. I'll have a full update oh, and get the pages updated before long. Um, but I did go and look on Amazon. Uh, it's getting well reviewed. 
Uh, people are not all five stars. It is long. Apparently, it's a mystery, which is interesting. Oh. It also involves procedural police work, which he had in the Pandora Star uh, uh, series. Uh, That's the right. Two, That's the right. two volume. Remember, he had Paula, yeah. who was this really right. cool investigator. Uh, investigator. Yeah. And uh, so there's some of that, and there, there's mystery, there's chasing aliens around. This is in the far future where, where remember that in Peter's previous work where we had in, in the Pantora Star, they had wormhole technology and were running trains through wormholes, which I loved. Um, here, rather than tr- – there's, there's still no faster-than-light travel, but they figured out how to do teleportation. But the teleportation is controlled – by one family, which is multiple generations of clones, and the clones, as will happen, if you keep cloning clones of clones of clones of clones... Transcription be- errors. Yes, you get exactly yeah. DNA transcription errors. So they're becoming a little defective. Uh-oh. Uh, anyway, it sounds like... Fa- I mean, I just trust Peter to, to give us a really romping story. So, so as soon as I... it's sci-fi. It's just, it's just a sci-fi detective story. Oh, it's absolutely science fiction. It's yeah. set in, in the far future and uh, in a really interesting universe. So Good. I can't wait to read it. I haven't yet, but thank you, Mike, for bringing it to our attention. And some people also tweeted it to me, so I had seen that before I encountered it in the mailbag just now. Audible, uh, let me check it. Uh, you know, they have a lot of Peter F. Hamilton stuff. I don't know if they have that it, one yet. If not, it's only because it's so new. <laughs> yeah, nine hundred, and it's 900 pages. <laughs> <laughs> Non-trivial. Great North Road, is that the name of it? Uh, yes. Yes, they do. Unbelievable. Well, I guess I'll be uh, listening to it, not, not reading it. Can we see how many it. hours it is? Uh, 36 hours. It's not that long. Okay. Not that long. I mean, that's longish. Good. Uh, Please listen slash read it for us, Leo, and, and let us know what you think. Here's what the uh, narrator the sounds like. The lurking evil of the Xanth. Now, experience and its associate wisdom had flicked him onto the more rational track of time-serving and networking yeah. to make he, he's the final... So good. Com- he's our favorite. One of he our really, favorites. Yeah. I, I would say he's absolutely... I mean, I love the work of Mike McCollum at Sci-Fi AZ, Sci-Fi hyphen... Sci-Fi hyphen AZ.com. Yeah. Love his work, but Peter's... Oh, boy. It, it, I, I, gotta, I gotta catch up, because I haven't done any of the Void trilogy yet, either. Oh, God, that goes on and on. <laughs> <laughs> Not my favorite Peter F. Hamilton, actually. I know, yeah. Uh, I I think if I if I were to recommend series, I w- I would recommend if someone wanted to see if they like him, Fallen Dragon. Yeah, that's is, the one. I've read it three times. Yeah, it's just oh, it's that's just a master. A, that's a masterpiece. Joy. Yeah, yeah. The the Void series, I would say, not a masterpiece. Pandora's yeah, and then, and then Pandora Star, Star, very good. Yep, very good. Yep. And Judas Unchained is the is a sequel to that, right, and then you right. you've you're pretty much done with blobs that are become intelligent. <laughs> It's a great premise. Oh, I do enjoy God, the premise of that. I love his world. Yeah. Not so crazy about the uh, the Void trilogy. Okay. Steve Gibson is at grc.com, Gibson Research Corporation. See how that works out? That's where you'll find all his freebies and his bread and butter, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, even for solid-state drives. He also makes 16-kilobit versions of the show available there in audio and transcribed. 
Each each week, Elaine transcribes every episode, and the transcriptions are online there. GRC.com. It's also where you'd go to ask a question, GRC.com slash feedback. And there's lots of, I mean, it is a treasure trove of eclectic, you know, material that Steve has gathered over his uh, eclectic life. You and I, baby. Oh, you mean the site? Yes, it yes. is getting ever, it is ever more eclectic, actually. Yes, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. So uh, if you like what you hear here, ooh, you get a whole lot more there. In fact, yeah, I've often thought that it's uh, nice that I called the company Gibson Research Corporation because <laughs> it gives me complete freedom. Right. It's whatever you know, whether Gibson's researching this week. Whether, whether, whether it's ketones in your breath or it's the longest repeating strings or it's the how to quiet your neighbor's dog, we got it all. You, you get the idea, folks. Now, now you understand what I mean when I say eclectic? Okay. Uh, he also uh, does this show, when we are very grateful to him for it, every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC on twit.tv. Watch live if you can. Because there's often stuff before and after that's worth staying tuned for. But if you can't, we make audio, as I said, audio and video versions available after the fact. Steve's got the baby ones and the transcriptions. I've got the higher quality audio and the video at twit.tv slash SN. Or just go to iTunes or anywhere podcasts are offered uh, and you can search for Security Now or Twit. You'll find all our shows on all of the usual suspects. Steve, I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Leo. Security now.